Hello there. Welcome to the first episode of the System Science in Public Health podcast series. I am your host, Petra Maya. I'm Professor of Public Health at the MRC CSO Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow. I'm also a director of the CIFAR Consortium. CIFAR is a collaboration between seven universities and three government partners that aims to develop system science evidence to support health and well-being in all policies. In this podcast series, I will be speaking to scientists, thinkers, policymakers and practitioners who work in this space. Joining us via Zoom today is Associate Professor Joanna Quipinti. Joe is Head of Systems Modelling, Simulation and Data Science at the Brain and Mind Centre, University of Sydney, Australia. She's also the Managing Director of CSART, which is an international alliance of centres of excellence in systems modelling to inform health and social policy, of which Cypher is a key partner. Joe, what excites you most about working in system science? I guess I was drawn to system science because of its transdisciplinary um, underpinnings and its analytic methods that allow us to understand the world, not by examining individual pieces of the puzzle in isolation, but by seeing how all the pieces fit together and how they change and influence each other over time. If we take the example of a pendulum clock, we can examine the pendulum and the gears, the cogs, the mainspring, the dial and the hands and the face of the clock in isolation to understand what makes up a clock. But it's not until we understand how all of those pieces meticulously fit together and move together that we truly understand the nature of time and how to measure and track its passing. So what excites me most about system science is the possibility of achieving more advanced scientific insights than um, the research methods we traditionally use in the health and social sectors and its ability to deliver more uh, responsive and instructive advice to government. Joe, can you tell us a bit about your work on youth mental health and how you got into this area? Sure. So since 2015, I've led various programs of work in Australia using systems modelling to provide national and state policy agencies and regional planners with interactive decision support tools to inform policy and planning decisions. Over a period of about three or four years, my team developed over 30 systems models to tackle issues such as um, alcohol-related harms, tobacco control, childhood overweight and obesity, diabetes in pregnancy, cardiovascular disease, child protection, uh, and homelessness, to name a few. Then several years ago, I was fortunate enough to meet Professor Ian Hickey, who is co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre, where I'm now based, who saw instantly the potential of systems modelling to help break through some of the persistent challenges of mental health system reform and regional service planning. And we started collaborating on systems models to achieve this. To give you some uh, uh, idea of these challenges, the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimated that in 2019, suicide accounted for the highest number of years of potential life lost ahead of heart disease and cancer because we were losing people at a younger age. Over the last decade, the rates of suicide have been rising in younger cohorts. And that's consistent with national and international data on increasing rates of anxiety and depression and drug, drug misuse. 
So even prior to the pandemic, we were failing young people. The persistence of the burden of mental ill health and, and suicidal behaviour globally um, actually precipitated decades of research devoted to the study of risk factors with a view to informing interventions to address those risk factors. But after half a century of uh, risk factor research and little progress towards the field's intended goal of having impact on population mental health and suicide outcomes, questions are naturally being raised as to whether the field has been perhaps too constrained within narrow methodological limits. Actually, a few years ago, Franklin and colleagues from uh, Vanderbilt, um, Harvard, Boston and Columbia universities published a meta-analysis of 50 years of risk factor research for suicidal thoughts and behaviours. And they noted that the set of risk factors from um, pre-1985 studies is virtually indistinguishable from the set of risk factors from 2014 studies, indicating a systemic failure of scientific advancement beyond the earlier work and really a tragedy for population mental health. Not only in mental health, but in health and social systems and policy research generally, it's like the academic community became so preoccupied in studying the components of the clock that we forgot to take the next step and study how the pieces fit together. And just as an aside, that's, that's why the work of the Cypher Consortium is so exciting. It really represents that, that um, next innovative and important step. So having spent five years as part of the infectious disease research community earlier in my career, I think we can learn a lot from infectious disease epidemiology, which has matured into an advanced interdisciplinary field through methodological expansion um, that makes more routine use of the analytic techniques of system science, particularly systems modeling. They routinely engage with these methods to, to understand the interdependencies of factors that drive transmission dynamics, to analyze which factors or parameters are more important than others, and to provide a platform to project forward, to, to test proposed responses in the safety of a simulated environment before they're implemented in the real world. So at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the maturity of this field enabled the global research community to rapidly deploy and customize existing individual and population-based systems models. They were able to forecast coronavirus transmission trajectories under different conditions for different contexts and considering a, a range of human behavioral responses. And by doing so, provided governments with critical tools for navigating the complexity of the issue before them. And where decision makers worked closely and cooperatively with modelers, such as in Australia and New Zealand, these models helped inform timely, decisive and effective responses to the pandemic. So you believe it's possible to use a similar approach for addressing the challenges of youth mental health? Yes, I think it's not only possible, it's essential, particularly as we work to mitigate the profound effects that recent global events are having on young people. As we know, um, adolescence and young adulthood is a formative period for social and emotional development. 
um, for the formation of occupational aspirations uh, and for the establishment of networks and cognitive and economic assets that will become the foundation of their future resilience. But these are extraordinary times. And in recent years, we've seen to a greater extent, uh, major droughts, extreme weather events, catastrophic bushfires, and now a pandemic that, that has precipitated twin public health and economic ad adversities that are undermining confidence in the basic human rights of health, of housing, of education, of livelihoods, and of futures in a generalized way. Many countries and international agencies uh, now recognize the unprecedented impact COVID-19 and recession are likely to have on mental health services as a result of increased levels of psychological distress, uh, mental health issues, risk-taking and antisocial behaviors, alcohol and other drug misuse, domestic violence and, uh, and suicidal behaviors. The COVID-19 response in Australia has shown that when motivated and informed by an evidence-based systems modeling approach, governments can respond quickly and effectively to the physical health threat. So over 2021, 2022, the same needs to happen to address the mental health threat broadly, and especially the threat to young people and their futures. The fundamental importance of good mental health in um, underpinning cohesive and productive societies can't be overstated. Beyond the devastating impact that poor mental health and suicide has on individuals and families, our collective mental wealth also underpins our national prosperity and ability to build back better in the aftermath of the pandemic. I noticed that you mentioned the term mental wealth instead of mental health here. Um, tell us more. Well, mental wealth is actually a term coined by UK professor John Beddington and colleagues in their 2008 paper in Nature entitled The Mental Wealth of Nations. Mental wealth is the value created from our collective mental assets on both economic productivity and social productivity. These mental assets refer to our cognitive resources and our mental health and well-being. So improvements in these mental assets leads to greater economic productivity from enhancing the population's ability and willingness to, to work creatively and effectively. And it also leads to greater social productivity by nurturing positive social relationships to, to build and sustain more inclusive, equal and resilient communities. So in this way, the mental wealth of a nation is actually more than the sum of the mental assets of individuals. It's a case of the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. I understand that in Australia, you're establishing a mental wealth initiative. What is it and what do you hope to achieve? That's right. Um, led by the Brain and Mind Centre of the University of Sydney, we are bringing together leaders across government, uh, business, mental health, social policy and communities to harness systems modeling and simulation and establish the national and regional infrastructure needed to measure, monitor, forecast and inform investments in the mental wealth of our nation. And these leaders include former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, businesswoman and philanthropist, Lucy Turnbull, economist and former Labor Party politician, Craig Emerson, 
and economist, lawyer, and former co-chair of the OECD Trade and Competition Committee, Professor Ellen Fells, all of whom are on our expert advisory panel. In terms of what we hope to achieve, well, historically there's been um, a significant underinvestment in our national mental assets. In particular, this is because traditional academic and policy discussions have taken a deficits-based approach with a focus on measuring and avoiding mental illness, which has primarily fallen to the health sector to address. But as we know, um, uh, mental health and well-being is significantly influenced by the broader social and economic environment and the policies that shape that environment. Also, a deficits-based approach doesn't fully conceptualize the human potential that can be unlocked by fostering mental assets, which in turn leads to wealth creation for our economies and, uh, and our society more generally. As my colleague, Professor Ian Hickey says, there's likely more wealth in people's heads than in minerals in the ground. Traditionally, um, during economic downturns, the business sector has been the focus of, of policies and investments to lift, the um, to lift economic performance and GDP. And this is because we can directly measure the value of business to the economy. So what we're hoping to achieve is to be able to quantify and project the significant returns in terms of national prosperity of investing in the drivers of mental wealth of investing in things like education, um, in employment, uh, housing, financial security, healthcare, cultural safety, and of course, mental health and wellbeing. Additionally, we're working towards a measure that could be reported quarterly as a, as a supplement to GDP, which is well recognized as being a poor measure of national prosperity. And what would you say, why do you think systems modelling is so important to the endeavour to foster national mental wealth? That's a good question. Um, the World Bank has underscored the importance of governments investing in the human capital of their citizens by putting this agenda at the centre of an historic response to COVID-19. In the first 100 days of the pandemic, the World Bank leveraged over $16 billion to support an operational response that's trying to help countries rebuild with stronger, more equitable and more resilient economic and social systems. But there are two key challenges. How do countries allocate resources across the key drivers of mental wealth to ensure that they deliver the greatest and most equitable impacts? And how can they estimate what impact different investment decisions are likely to have? Addressing these challenges requires us to define, um, uh, measure uh, and monitor mental wealth. It requires us to build causal models capable of forecasting changes to mental wealth and using those models as decision support tools to inform the allocation of resources to foster mental wealth. We need systems modelling to do that. Without it, even if governments, uh, business or philanthropic organisations were motivated to take the World Bank's lead and, um, and invest in building national mental wealth, they would be making decisions blind to the impacts they're likely to have. It would be the usual invest and hope for the best approach. Without the right tools to inform smart investments, nations will continue to be prone to 
Simplistic conclusions, delayed actions, wrong turns, trial and error, waste and inefficiency, and a lack of agility to be responsive to a rapidly changing world. We need systems modeling to determine how to strategically invest and coordinate across business, economic, education, and mental health policies and actions to unlock this national potential. The return on investment could be enormous. What are some of the key challenges that you and your team have encountered in the application of system science to public health policy and planning? I'll admit the past uh, five or six years of building literacy and engagement with system science um, and systems modelling in health hasn't been easy. We've had to contend with the, the many misperceptions about systems modelling, not only from decision makers, but also uh, from our research peers who are unfamiliar with and therefore skeptical of the methods. But we've been tackling concerns and misinformation head on uh, and opening the modeling up to participatory processes, which has really helped people understand and contribute to uh, and use systems models. Consistent communication, uh, transparency, patience, uh, uh, an openness to learning and importantly an openness to having our assumptions challenged have all been pivotal um, in building literacy and trust uh, that has underpinned the success of our work. Then of course COVID came along which uh, certainly helped bring the modelling into the broader public consciousness and suddenly everyone was a an armchair infectious disease epidemiologist uh, challenging model assumptions and discussing and debating the learning which was fantastic and the, the media certainly helped play um, a big role in facilitating that communication and uh, facilitating the accessibility of modeling to lay audiences I feel we've made more progress in normalizing systems modeling as part of the public health analytic toolkit in the last 12 months than we've made over the previous um, uh, five years. And hopefully we're on an exponential trajectory. Another significant challenge we've faced over the years has been uh, difficulty in publishing the applied systems modeling um, research in more mainstream uh, medical, uh, psychology, public health, epidemiology and, and economic journals, as opposed to the specialist modeling journals. We've faced um, skepticism from reviewers and disinterest from editors regarding these methods, despite their long and robust history of use in infectious disease epidemiology and, uh, and other fields such as engineering and ecology and climate science. But resistance to evolution is not unexpected in the current conservative research culture, um, probably not helped by funding cuts to academic institutions, um, high competition for increasingly restricted research funds, and an increasingly competitive academic um, publishing market. So forays into alternative methods in this environment can be perceived as high risk and exploratory. Regardless, um, substantial technological and methodological advancements are being made by, by centres of excellence in health-focused systems modelling around the world, which are improving the accessibility um, and transparency and robustness of these modelling tools. And we're really making real progress now with dragging this work uh, into some of the more mainstream um, journals. 
what advice can you give to anyone out there who's keen on developing a career in system science? Well, after more than half a century of static linear analytic approaches dominating population health research, a paradigm shift is underway. So an investment in training in system science to supplement traditional public health training is an investment in next generation scientific advances. As resources become increasingly limited, as complex persistent problems become progressively urgent, and as the utility of systems modeling and simulation to help inform policy and planning decisions becomes more broadly recognized and normalized, demand for these skills will increase. They, they already are in very high demand. I would say that the science of complex systems and its analytic techniques, when undertaken as part of a multidisciplinary team and working collaboratively and transparently with decision makers and stakeholders, have the potential to deliver more effective and equitable public policy and health systems and make direct and profound impacts on people's lives. So my advice to those considering a career in system science, and even more broadly to those interested in a, in a career in public health, these are essential skills. So I'd say start training now. That was fascinating. Much for us oh. here in the UK to think about. Thank you so much, Joanne, for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Petra. If you'd like to read more about Joanne's work, you can find her profile on the University of Sydney website. If you'd like to find out more about Cypher, or you want to subscribe to future episodes of this podcast, go to cypher.ac.uk. Cypher is spelled with an S for sugar. You can also find out more about the work of the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit on our University of Glasgow website. Thank you for listening to our first episode, and I hope you'll join us next time. Until then, goodbye.